we're going to be in Acts 11. I'll tell you a little story. When I was a really young pastor, okay, I was in, in uh, eastern Kentucky, I'd go to preacher's meetings, okay, and they were always interesting. I'd wear my, you know, my best suit, or, or it may have been my only suit at the time, but I'd, I'd put on a suit, and I'd put on a tie, and I'd go to preacher's meetings, and, um, and I met this, they started talking about this guy that I didn't know, who is this guy? And they'd say, uh, they'd say, now Robert says this. I'm thinking, who's Robert? And why do we care what he uh, says? And then eventually they explained to me that there's a book called Robert's Rules of Order. And of course, as a young guy, I wanted to say, who is Robert and why does he have so many rules? Um, okay. And so I read this week about Robert's Rules of Order. You guys, you guys know that it's kind of had a, a proper way to run a meeting. It's kind of according to Robert's Rules of Order. The rules were formulated in 1863 by Henry Robert, a colonel in the U.S. Army. Now, it was interesting that Robert did not, however, develop these with a view to military application at all. In fact, um, he wrote Robert's Rules of Order because he was asked to preside at a church meeting. I think that's interesting. It just makes kind of sense, really, when you think about it. Um, he, he didn't know how to keep things moving in an orderly and fair manner. And so uh, what he noticed is that meetings were conducted differently in various parts of the country. And uh, so he saw a need for a universal standard. So his first attempt at formulating such a standard was released as a book in 1876. It's now in its 11th, in 2011, it had its... 11th edition, Robert's Rules of Order, and it sets out widely accepted principles um, such as addressing the chair of the meeting rather than the entire gathering, limiting the length of debate, all this kind of stuff. And all this emerged from Robert's desire to run a more orderly session of his church business meeting. A military guy. Uh, you know, a colonel in the army. Now, in our passage today, we're not going to see necessarily a church meeting, but we're going to deal with how the unexpected behavior of a church leader was handled in kind of a meeting of the first century church. Uh, we can learn a little bit. I, I'm fascinated with Acts 15, for instance, on how they dealt with the most pressing issue of the day, uh, inclusiveness. And we're going to kind of deal with that, with that issue today as well. Now, uh, when we were talking last week, uh, the earliest Christians, uh, we remember, were, were Jewish people to start with. But they had been taught in the Old Testament to remain separate from um, their pagan Gentile neighbors. It was all the way through the Old Testament. Remain separate from them. Um, Gentiles might be welcome to observe uh, at a, at, or learn even the Old Testament at synagogue meetings. By the way, there's a term here that you, you see uh, surfacing in the book of Acts. It's the term, it's some people be described as God-fearers. That's persons that came from a Gentile background who have accepted the God that you and I worship. Uh, in their case, they accepted the Old Testament Hebrew God, which you and I know to be the one, on, one and only true God. But they weren't Jewish. So they, they had to have a kind of a term for them, so they called them God-fearers. They couldn't be Jewish because they weren't born Jewish. They didn't have the right kind of blood. 
uh, coursing through their veins. So they were welcome to observe and maybe even learn at a synagogue meeting, but they couldn't be really accepted fully unless they, uh, they became um, a convert to the extreme that the, the males, for instance, had to be circumcised. They had to accept Jewish, Jewish uh, dietary law and that kind of thing. Well, the first followers of Jesus, it seems, assumed that the same would be true in the new church as it was in Judaism, that it's us and them. Now, the earliest Christians didn't even attempt to evangelize Gentiles at first. But God had a different idea. And if I read the Old Testament correctly, if I read the prophetic portion of the Old Testament correctly, he always had a, bet, a different idea. An idea of inclusiveness. That the Jews were, were put on the earth to save the rest of us. Okay? To be kind of that avenue. So, we're going to deal with what happens this morning. Um, we have read in recent chapters here, where beginning with the martyrdom of Stephen, widespread persecution begins. And the church leaves, the church that had been gathered in Acts 2, leaves Jerusalem. And as they travel about, they continue to spread the good news about Jesus to whoever will talk to them. Not just in the Jewish synagogue, but to Gentile people that will listen to them as well. So the leaders of the first century church needed some new thinking. What I believe here is God's thinking to see the inclusiveness that he intended for the gospel message. Okay, now we're going to start in Acts 11. We're going to read the first few verses of 11. Uh, Bob, can I get you to read the first three Okay, there's a rumor that spread about whom? Peter. Okay, so this is the, um, one of my Tennessee friends would say, this is the big daddy rabbit of the church, okay? Okay, this is the leader of the church, at least certainly one of the leaders. You could argue that James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, but this is Peter, and there's a rumor that's spreading like wildfire. Now, isn't it interesting? Ellie and I were talking a few minutes ago that you could learn more yesterday from Facebook and quicker about what happened in Stillwater than I was getting. I mean, we were on the news trying to get stuff off the internet, and Facebook had blown up about it a long time before I heard about it elsewhere. Rumors, especially in our day, can spread like wildfire. Isn't it interesting that this particular rumor about something that just happened a few days hence, a few days before, isn't it interesting that this stuff spread even without Facebook? Okay? But it is kind of amazing, Doyle, you know, that it spread even without Facebook. Um, the rumor was what about Peter? Hanging out with Gentiles, Sally, that's right. Eating with, he's been caught, he's been rumored. Is literally, the, the headline, okay, on Facebook was uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, friend of Jesus, has been rumored to have been eating with Gentiles. 
Now, to us today, that doesn't seem all that scandalous, but for them it was. Because there was us, and then there was them. The us was anybody with Jewish blood, and the them was literally anybody else. Okay? Peter is rumored to be hanging out. Sally, I like your term. Hanging out with Gentiles. Now, the story is, and it's a beautiful story. The story is... Um, about Cornelius, who's a Roman uh, centurion. He's a Roman magistrate, and you can read about him in Acts 10. We're going to re- kind of reprise this a little bit today as we go through 11. Uh, the, the story is beautiful. Cornelius, who was pre- had become a God-fearer, even though a Roman soldier and a Roman leader, had become a God-fearer, and that has led him in his pursuit of God. He hears about Jesus, and he becomes a Jesus follower, and he's just wanting more information. And the Lord leads him to Peter. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And Peter, in this context, has, according to the established group of us, has stepped out of line. He just stepped out of line. Now, there's a group that's talked about that Rob that Bob read about in verse 2 that's a critical group. Okay? Um, you're going to hear them talked about elsewhere. Would somebody run over, go to the right, not too far, to the right to Galatians, and let's go to Galatians 2, and if somebody would read verse 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Steve, can you get that one? Steve Blair? Thanks. 11 through 14, Galatians 2. Who wrote this? Paul. (laughs) How directly is he wading in on this debate? He's taken even the Apostle Peter on here, okay? Now, this is going to come later, but but it's the issue here where um, uh, you kind of see how abject or how out there and how out on the front line this issue was. Are we going to accept Gentiles? And if so, what do we do? Because the Bible has told us not to hang out with them. They eat things we're not supposed to eat. Okay? And Paul kind of takes this on. He, I think he, it's interesting here. He even throws his friend Barnabas under the bus. In the, in the passage that Steve, Steve reads here. So what we're dealing with here in in Acts 11 is even Peter himself is in trouble with this group that Paul's addressing here uh, that in some places we call the Judaizers. Um, They're um, kind of this very highly, the word that goes in your blank there is critical group. You could also put the word exclusive. Well, exclusive is already in, in the sentence here, but this critical group is highly exclusive. Now, that group still exists today. Okay. This highly exclusive, hey, um, 
um, kind of we're the only ones that have got it right. Okay, you ready? I've got a name for them. You ready? And it's always the name. Us. Us. Okay, I'm not talking about us in this room. I'm, I'm talking about it's always us that's critical of them. Am I right? There's always an us and a them, it seems like. And if I read the gospel right, Jesus went to the cross to take down the barrier between us and them. But we have a tendency always, don't we, to create an us versus them. Uh, Paul takes Peter on on this. I find it really interesting. Now, their accusation here in verse 3 is at least consistent. You went to the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. Um, it's consistent with their religious outlook. Uh, Gentiles are unclean. They're them. And, um, but the truth is, this rumor starts only knowing part of the story. Am I right? If you've read it, and we're going to read Peter's telling the story that happened in chapter 10 here in just a minute, but we're going to hear about here the power of the grapevine, okay, and the power of a rumor. Now, it was probably 1982, somewhere in that era. Some of you in this room are probably weren't born then, or if you were, you won't remember what was going on, but... Um, um, in 1982, again, I was a young pastor, and I went to our, our kind of denominational convention in Anderson, Indiana, and um, I, I, told, I told Cliff I was going to tell this story and his dad. It was early on in my ministry. I was, I was having a, kind of a pretty good and fruitful ministry in the church where I was, but I had met Cliff's dad, and we loved each other. Cliff's dad was, has always been just a dear friend of mine since I was early in, on in ministry. He's always been a great encourager to me. And he had called me, he had called me before this convention. We both knew we were going to be there. And he said, would you have breakfast with me on Monday morning? And I'm sure. I love Marvin. Sure. And so we met for breakfast. And, um, and um, actually, Marvin was asking me at the time. He was in a different city at a, at a larger church, and he was asking me if I would consider coming being a part of his staff. That didn't work out. It wasn't going to work out, and we pretty well just mutually decided over breakfast that it wasn't going to work out. But by the time I reached the convention grounds, literally the, one of the first people that came up to me later on that afternoon and said hello to me was a guy that, that I went to college with and said, I hear you're moving to Lexington. And my face turned as red as Trisha's jacket, and I, and I said, uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, that could have got me in immense trouble where I was, you know. But the power of a rumor, it was, it, it, literally, I didn't even know it was a rumor, and it had become a rumor in like less than three or four hours. I was seen together with another pastor, another senior minister, and it was just made, an assumption was made, and a rumor was begun. Can you imagine what it would be like if Facebook was operative in those days? Okay. There is a power, isn't there, in a rumor? Now, what the deal is, as with my friend Marvin Schooler, uh, who approached me on, on the convention grounds that particular time, it's same, the same thing is true of these who are upbraiding Peter. They only know a very little bit of the story. We were just having the country morning breakfast, you know. 
All right. Now let's read on and see some of the rest of the story. Um, I want somebody, if you will, Bob, can I just come back to you? Start at five and at least read down through about eight. I'm sorry, start at four and read through eight. Now, the Bible does this a little bit, especially in the book of Acts. So I want to, want to tell you what's going on. Uh, Peter's going to, just, going to kind of set the tone in verse 4 for what he begins to tell in verse 5 and following for the, kind of the, uh, most of the rest of this chapter, um, at, actually down to about verse 18 or so. Um, and so he's going to tell what happened to him in verse 10. I, I find it really intriguing, and, and again, it, it happens really clearly in the book of Acts several times, especially with Paul's story. It will tell you what happened, okay, in, ver in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, some character will tell you the story again. He'll say, well, this is what happened. So, so Peter is addressing the rumor, okay? Yeah, I ate with Gentiles, but you got to hear this. That's all you know. You don't know the rest of the story. They're, they've heard that he's been hanging out with them. And he says, yep, but, but okay, wait a minute. You got to hear the rest of the story. Now, isn't it interesting, and I, I am so guilty of this. Isn't it interesting that we kind of, don't we get ourselves in trouble sometimes when we try to explain our behavior? And there are times when if, if I assertively living, there are some times when I, I need to just say, you're right, and walk on. Now, this time it needed some explanation. But I think one of the things I want to guard against in my life, and this is something I need to learn more about, is being kind of defensive of my actions when I know I'm in the right. Because when I, on the moment that I become defensive, I kind of take away from kind of the truth in my life sometimes. So, uh, sometimes that can be counterproductive. In this case, it helps us because Peter does explain his actions here. In verse 5, he begins to say, okay, what you guys don't know, what the rumor mill didn't say, is that there are two godly visions. That's the word to put in there, visions. There are two visions at work here. I put the references there where you can read about them. There are two visions. Peter's going to describe his vision. He's going to mention uh, the vision. Cornelius also had a vision. This Gentile person, this Roman citizen leader, also had a vision. So in chapter 10, there are two visions that are key to this story, both Peter's and Cornelius's. And they happened in a place called, when Peter was in Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa. This is the place, it's kind of famous in biblical history. It's the place where um, Jonah got on the wrong boat. Can you read about that in Jonah 1-3? Jonah get, goes to Joppa, and when God's saying, go to Nineveh, um, um, Jonah says, book one to Tarshish. Remember that? Okay. And it gets him in all kinds of trouble. Well, that boat left from Joppa. Joppa was also the place where Peter, just a few verses before, just a couple of chapters before, had um, 
in the power of the resurrected Jesus, had performed a resurrection himself of a person named either Dorcas or Tabitha. Both names are used. Okay. Um, a, a, a wonderful lady that was um, key to the believers in her area, and she was dead, and they called on Peter because he was nearby, and here it's in that area where, uh, where Peter performs this resurrection. Um, so, um, uh, in the power of Jesus. Now, so verse 6 and 7, Peter is up on the roof. He's telling the story from chapter 10. And in verse 6 and 7, he's telling the story of, of this vision that he had. And, and kind of the issue is here is um, that, that there's a voice asking him to do what? To break the law, okay? Literally, it says kill and eat. Roger, that ought to be your favorite verse, okay? It's got to be your, one of your favorite verses, kill and eat, okay? All right? Anyway, any field and stream guy's got to love Acts 10 and 11, kill and eat. And what? it's whatever. It's critters of all kinds in this sheet. There's a sheet uh, let down by four corners. It opens it up. It's got all kinds of little critters in it, okay? Both, probably both clean and unclean. Now, who determines what's unclean? Leviticus 11, God's law determines, Joanna, what's unclean, including stuff like shellfish and, uh, and um, snakes, reptiles. I'm kind of glad of that. Uh, you know, don't do snake, alive or dead. Okay, I just don't do that. Um, but um, there's a few critters in the sheet that God has said no to eating. And so here's the question here. Why would God then tell a Jew to do something that violates his own law? Here's what I want to tell you. This is not about Peter eating lobster. It's just not about Peter eating the lobster or even a rattlesnake. It's just not about that. That's only the illustration that God uses, the vision that he uses the, to get to the real point. So why would God tell a Jew to do something that violates his own law? Because he, he's going to see, for one thing, if Peter's going to follow him. So as Peter's telling this story, uh, let me read verse 8 again here. Remember the vision? in the vision, I heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I was talking to a person uh, Friday night about a, fr a mutual friend of ours who experienced Papados for the first time in Dallas and talked about how wonderful it is. And, and uh, I'm thinking, what Peter is saying here, I have never eaten at Papados. Okay, that's what he's saying. No shellfish has crossed these lips. No alligators cross the, okay, he's saying that, all right? So verse 8 then, he says, But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. What Peter is saying here, here, and that's what you want to put in your line, Peter assures his audience that he knows the rules. He knows the rules. I put some references in here, and I, I, I read them even again this morning. Jesus kind of ran up against this quite a bit. But what Jesus was run up, running up against, um, he was always getting in trouble for eating with the wrong class of people. That's for one thing. But he was also in trouble because he didn't wash, he and the disciples didn't wash their hands enough. 
And um, so that's being dealt with in Mark in the, in the references that I left for you, for you. But what Jesus comes through this whole thing is, interestingly, he kind of affirms a dietary law. I find that intriguing. If we're getting to here where, Peter's got, where God is going to say, uh, kill and eat, and Peter says, not me, Lord, I've never done that. So Peter's kind of going to tell him, I know the law, I know the rules, but in verse 9, and I'm grateful for this about what the Scripture is doing. The vision that was given to Peter was not left to his own interpretation. I really love that. Now, okay, let's, let's be honest here. If anybody could have interpreted a vision, wouldn't it have kind of been Peter or one of the original 12? They've been with Jesus for three and a half years. They've been witnesses to the resurrection. They've been inspired by the, the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through them and in their lives. So they've, they've really in a position to interpret a dream or a vision. But God didn't leave them that up. He just didn't leave it hanging out there to say, let's see now what Peter does with this. He didn't leave the vision to Peter's own interpretation. The meaning of the vision was literally knocking at the door. As Peter is contemplating this, he's scratching his old formerly fisherman head. God alone is in the position of determining purity and impurity. And I want to just stop here and get a little preachy just for a minute, just for a minute. Be careful about interpreting signs. Would you, would you just be careful? Be careful about listening to those who are constantly interpreting signs. Okay? I do think God invades my life a lot. He gives me a lot of indications of what, which direction he wants me to go. But I'm going to tell you, if somebody tells you, I got a vision from God last night, and here's what, it, here's what God wants me to tell you. You want to check and see what they ate for supper. Okay? All right? You know, if somebody tells you, watch out for the blood moons, you know, that whole deal. Just be careful, okay? Be careful. God, if there's an important interpretation to come to you, he's going to let you know. And he let Peter know. Let me tell you, exactly the sheet has come down. He said, you know, the voices said, kill and eat. And Peter said, not me. And while he's scratching his head about that, there's a knock at the door. And it's Cornelius and his entourage. They've also had a vision that said, go to this place and find a guy by the name of Peter. He's going to tell you what you need to do. This was a setup. God set it up. He orchestrated this whole thing. Now, okay, got to read verse 10. I find verse 10 intriguing, and I want to sign a couple other things for us to look at. Would somebody go to John 13, 38? Just go back one book to the left. John, Bob, you get it? Oh, sorry. John 13, 38. Somebody get that. Thank you, Sally. And then somebody else get John 21, 17. I saw another hand over here. Eileen, would you get that? Read those to us really quickly. This is other times when Peter has had to deal directly with the voice of God, okay? And in this case, it was the God in the flesh of Jesus. Okay, go ahead, Sally. When Jesus 
This is before the cross. Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That's the voice of God in the flesh, okay? Now, here's the voice of God in the flesh after the resurrection, Eileen. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what, how many times did he ask him that question? In, in this verse, he's asking him now the third time. Listen to verse 10 from back in our text in Acts 11. This happened, the vision happened three times, and everything was drawn back into the sky. It seems to me, okay, this is just me, but it seems to me that, that, um, that it turns out that Peter always needs about three reminders. You catching that? He must always need just about three reminders, not two, not four. He needs three reminders, okay? The rooster had to crow three times, um, or just had to go three times, you know, all that, okay? Three reminders. So he gets three visions, he's, he, and he's trying to determine this when the knock is on the door. In verse 11, look at verse 11. And behold, at that moment, there's a knock at the door. At that moment, three men appeared. Here's another three, right? At the house in which we were staying having been sent to me from Caesarea. That's a long hike. They came over there led by God, by their own vision of God, by, by Cornelius' own vision of God. They come orchestrated by God with the express purpose, not only of them receiving the Holy Spirit and faith and being ushered into the, the church, into the kingdom of God, but on a grander scale in some ways, they are there in order to change Peter's outlook. Look at 1017. I'm just going to, if you like my Bible's like mine, you can just look across the page. Here's what it says. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind, so as what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. While he's thinking about this. This is a setup. This is not coincidence. This is orchestrated by God. Look at verse 28. Same chapter, chapter 10. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. How did God show Peter that he should call no man unholy or unclean? By a thrice-sent sheet of critters. Don't you love the Bible? <laughs> Don't you love the way it just teaches us ethics, teaches us how to do life in fairly clear terms if we'll kind of allow him to deal with it? Now, it's interesting here because I want us to also look, um, um, all right, Cindy, would you mind to go back to Deuteronomy 19.15? There's going to be a rule there, a law there. So Peter's telling about all this, and when he does so, he's got some friends with him. You can put the word witnesses here. Peter's experience was corroborated by several witnesses. Let me read to you 11.12 uh, here. Here's what he's going to say. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren, so he, he motions where he is now, also went with me and entered the man's house. He's got Peter and he's got six corroborating witnesses. 
Now, why is he doing that? I think it's because of what is in the law in Deuteronomy 19.15. Peter's been accused of something, and here's, here's the law. Okay, let's, let's err on the high side. Got to have three witnesses. How many does Peter have? Twice that many. I'm going to argue he's got a couple more, and they're all important, all right? I'm going to argue he's got six, six witnesses. Now look at verse 13 and 14. He's also got another witness who knows all about this, who had a vision himself. Look at verse 13 and 14. And he reported to us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to, this is, this is uh, Cornelius talking, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So there's a seventh witness. It's this, this Gentile, this Roman, by the name of Cornelius. But then there's another witness. Verse 15. Somebody read verse 15. This happened to Peter. It's attested to by six friends, all Jewish. It is also attested to by a seventh person who is this Roman centurion who has gotten, had gotten a vision from God. And who's the eighth witness? The Holy Spirit. My guess is he's the most important witness, right? If the Lord sends his spirit to tell you to do it, then you probably ought to do it. All important eighth witness here. Now, we read a little bit of that. Look down at verse 18. Here's their response. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted through the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What was their response? Sounds right to me. If God did this, if the Holy Spirit showed up in all this, it must be okay. So their response was, let me give you two, um, uh, two words to put in the, in the next blanks. Those who had been critics now offered praise to God. Those who had been critics now offered praise to God. It's pretty wonderful. Now, what I want to ask as we apply this in the, next, the last four or five minutes of what we got together here, am I willing to do this? Am I willing when God kind of peels back the curtain for me, when, when there's all kinds of evidence to the contrary of some opinion I've had, am I willing to drop the criticism and now offer praise? Well, God is doing something that he surprised the socks off of me about. And how wonderful is this? That's what they begin to say. Or am I the one who's like, maybe your kids weren't like my kids, but you know how a kid will eventually do what you've been asking them 16 times to do? And they'll say something to the effect. They may, they'll either say it or you can tell it on their face. Okay, I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. Which camp are you in? The person who drops the criticism and says, praise God, he's doing something that surprised the socks off of me. 
Or is it, well, I'll, I'll accept him, but I don't have to like him. There were those, by the way, who adopted that opinion. You know what? We don't have to like this. We don't have to do this. Now, this all promotes, provokes a lot of really strong emotions. Yet the story beautifully doesn't end with one group holding a grudge and stomping off mad or another group gloating over winning a close vote. Rather, the text shows the church carefully considered the evidence and in the end, conceding to what God himself has done and they begin to sing to God be the glory great things he has done. It really couldn't be much more beautiful. Okay, so what's the point? Here's what I believe the point is. We have all been, everyone in this room, have all been in the camp of them. We've all been they. Can you remember a time when you were kind of one of them? Can, can I encourage you with something? And I think we forget this in the church and we forget it really quickly. We forget what it was like when we were them. We've been us long enough that we've forgotten what it was like to be them. I accepted Jesus when I was eight years old. You might say, okay, you didn't know enough to accept Jesus. Okay, all I know is this. Bobby Jarman, who made the best chocolate icebox pie I've ever had in my life, was my Sunday school teacher. And something she said in Sunday school, before we got to church, something she said in Sunday school made me recognize, this is like a light bulb went on, I am a sinner in need of a Savior at eight, eight years old. And I went to an altar and I wait till the end of the next service because that's what you had to do when, in, in 1963. You had to wait till the end of the service and go to an altar to pray and embarrass the hound out of yourself, you know, to get that all done. So I waited till then and did that. So I've been a Christian a long time. All of you, you can do the math. You know, eight till 60 is 52 years. Okay. Can I tell you something? There are times when I've been in so long that I forget what it was like to not be in. There, there are some times when I orient myself so much as one of us that I forget that once, at one time, I was one of them. And there are times when God has to lower a sheet three times in my face with a bunch of critters on it to say, listen, buddy, if I told you he's clean, then he's clean. If I told you to eat shrimp etouffee, eat some shrimp etouffee. You know what this did in Acts 11? It changed the world. Do you think that could happen again? Do you think it could happen again? Do you think it could happen again? I know it could happen again, but it's not gonna happen again until I move beyond thinking I am us 
and they are they. I hope you'll pray with me about this. I'm working on this in a lot of different arenas. In, in those who, who come from different cultures and those who think differently from me and those who have different kinds of orientations that I'm kind of really struggling with. Who's the us these days and who's the them? And what is God saying to me about my exclusivity? I just don't want to be there. You know, one of the reasons Jesus was nailed to a cross is not only to save your sins and mine. That was the main reason, right? But if you think about it, he was nailed to a cross with his arms wide open, as wide as they could be stretched. And Acts 11 is helping us flesh that out. Would you read chapter 12 with me next week? And we'll go there and see how it, this kind of has lived out in Paul's life, okay? Bless you. Have a great Sunday. Thank you.